If you would, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I'm actually going to begin with the reading of God's Word this morning. And so, although we just had you sit down, I'm going to ask you to stand again for the reading of God's Word. Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So have you ever heard somebody say, I wear many hats. Maybe you have said something like that. For those of you who aren't familiar with this um, way of speaking, to wear many hats simply means that a person has many different roles, many different responsibilities. Maybe you're an engineer. And so at work, you wear your engineer hat, but you're also a husband and a father. And so when you're at home, you wear your family man hat. And as you're seeking to give leadership and management to your family, your wife may from time to time want you to remember the difference between your engineer hat and your family dad hat. Because your children are not airplanes. They're put together differently. I was talking with a pastor at our preaching workshop a couple of weeks ago who shared with me a breakthrough in his marriage. His wife told him that he needed to stop being her pastor and start being her husband. He needed to take off his pastor hat when he was at home and put on his husband had. The the shift has been good for their marriage, and I'm glad that he learned that lesson. However, I want to say that this many hats way of thinking is dangerous when it comes 
to our Christian life. Why is that? So many Christians compartmentalize their faith. They wear their Christian hat when they walk into church or into Bible study, but then they promptly take it off and put on their work hat when they walk in to their job, put on their family hat when they walk in to their home. Let me just say at the outset that this is not the right way to think about your life if you belong to Christ. This kind of division, this type of compartmentalization is absolutely foreign to the worldview of the Bible. Yes, we have many roles and responsibilities that are each important, but if you are a Christian, something radical has happened to you. Your union with Christ has fundamentally changed you and it should affect everything about you, everything that you do in such a way that you could say, I really only have, I really only wear one hat. And it's so big that it fits over all of the other roles and responsibility in my life. Your life, if you are in Christ, is really only about One thing, one all-encompassing grand purpose. What is it? Well, Romans 12 marks a major turning point in Paul's letter. We've seen exhortations, commands up to this point in the first 11 chapters, but now at the turn, chapter 12, The rest of the chapter is dominated by exhortations. He begins in verse 1 by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. You could translate that, I urge you, or I exhort you, therefore, by the mercies of God. So there's this big turn to exhortation. But the exhortations are because of God's mercies. Please, if you're not with me, get with me right now. These two things must be held together. Exhortation and mercy. What God calls believers to do is always predicated on what God has already done. In Jesus Christ. We don't obey to earn God's grace. We obey because we already have God's grace. What has God already done? What are His mercies? Well, you can go back and review all that we've learned in Romans 1 to 11. But we see a number of times that His mercy and His compassion is what He has bestowed on those that He has chosen. Chapter 9. He saved those who have believed the Gospel. Chapter 10. He's justified all of those who are in Christ. Chapter 3, all the way forward. He's lavished His mercy and grace 
upon his people. Yes, he exhorts them to obey him, but it's always because of mercy. We have to get the order right. Mercy first. Obedience that follows. But as we think about this obedience, this exhortation section of Romans, what I want us to grasp is the way that Paul frames obedience. The way that he frames the Christian life. The way that he frames what it looks like to follow after Jesus. How does he frame it? He frames it in terms of all-encompassing worship. Not a compartmentalized way of life, but a life marked by pervasive worship of God. Present yourselves, he tells us. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what is your one thing? The one hat that covers all other areas in your life. It is this pervasive principle of worship. Verses 1 to 2, Paul lays down this principle. But then he shows how this principle of pervasive worship, all-encompassing worship, he shows how it applies to every area of your life, very specifically. So beginning in verse 3, he starts to talk about how it applies to your life in the church. But in the weeks ahead, we're going to see in chapters 12 through 15, so these are the umbrella verses for chapters 12 to 15, we're going to see how this worship of God applies to our life even out in the world. Not just in the church, not just in our homes, but in the world as well. So this morning, I want to do two things. I want to elaborate on this principle I've already introduced to you, a principle of all of life worship. And then I want to look at how it applies to ministry in the church. So the principle, and then really the application of that principle to one specific area, our ministry in the church. So there'll be two points. Here's the first. God's mercy should lead to holistic worship of God. God's mercy should lead to holistic worship. Many Christians are so familiar with Romans 12, 1 to 2, that we miss how revolutionary the language Paul uses is. The right response to God's mercy is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This use of language is revolutionary. This command comes on a mountain of texts that talk about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. The people of God worshipped God at the tabernacle and later at the temple as priests presented sacrifices for them. Sacrifices that were holy, set apart. Sacrifices that were acceptable. They were well-pleasing to God. Now, in Christ, 
We don't have to offer animal sacrifices anymore. We don't need priests to offer year after year sacrifices for atonement. Christ Himself has offered Himself as an atoning sacrifice once and for all. Paul, though, says that we do still have to offer a sacrifice. Not a sacrifice for atonement. Christ has done that. But in view of the mercy that we have in Christ, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Worship of God is no longer isolated to a particular time in a particular place. It encompasses all of our lives. Paul takes all of the language of the Old Testament sacrificial system and worship and he applies it to every Christian's life and every moment of their lives. Sure, we're gathered to worship God right now. But this is only part of our worship of God. Paul's vision is an all-of-life vision of worship. And as we'll see in the chapters that follow, this is not just life in the church. It's every moment of our lives. Holistic worship is worship in all of life. But it's not only that. It's worship with all that is within us. All that we've got. Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Most commentators believe that this reference to bodies is not a reference simply to our physical bodies. It encompasses that. It includes that. But it encompasses all that we are. Our mind, our heart, our will, our bodies. All that you are. Present those as a living sacrifice to God. So in every area of life, but also with everything that we have. Similar to what Jesus commanded in the great commandment or that we can read about in Deuteronomy 6.4 that we are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength and in every area of our lives. Holistic worship. All of life. All that you've got offered up only unto God. Not compartmentalized. And Paul says in the English Standard Version, this is your spiritual worship. I think that King James gets closer on this one. He says, this is your reasonable service. That is a literal translation of this passage. Your holistic worship is reasonable. It is logical. Why does he say that? This is what he's saying. He's saying your whole life, all of you in every area of your life, worship to God, it makes sense because of what God has done for you. In view of God's mercy, it only makes sense that we would give all that we've got in every area of life only to God. Think about it for a moment. Why it makes sense. 
We're talking about worship offered unto God. Where did Paul start talking about worship? In the book of Romans. What did our life look like before we received God's mercy? Romans 1, 18, we were all under the wrath of God. And why were we all under the wrath of God apart from God's mercy? Because we were worshiping, not God, but idols. Instead of honoring God as the creator, we were worshiping things that are created, is what Romans 1 tells us. But now that we have received God's mercy, doesn't it make sense that we would instead only worship God? Chapter 6, Paul says that we once presented our bodies as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. Now that we have received God's mercy, it only makes sense that we would present our bodies to God. Paul says that before, this is chapter 1 again, we didn't see fit to acknowledge God. And so therefore God gave us up to a debased mind. But now, because of His mercy, through the Spirit, we have a new mind. And with our new mind, it only makes sense that we would, as verse 2 says, Seek to renew our new mind, to discern the will of God so we can live our life in line with the will of God. God's mercy should lead to holistic worship. All that we are in every area of our lives offered up only to God. That's your one hat, your worship hat that should pervade every nook and cranny of who you are and of the areas that God has placed you. What does this look like? In verse 2, Paul gives us a clue that we don't have to guess what holistic worship looks like. He tells us the way to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Look at what he says in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the way we renew our mind is is through testing and discerning what the will of God is. And then applying the will of God to our lives. Well, you're maybe sitting there thinking, that's it. That's what I've been trying to figure out my whole life. What is the will of God for my life? Ever since I could remember, I was thinking, what does God want me to do when I grow up? What should I do after high school? Should I go to college? If so, which one? Should I marry? Is that God's will for my life? If so, who? So often when we think about the will of God, we're thinking in these terms. These very specific life situational things for us. But I want to put before you that the will of God, most of the time when it is spoken of in the scriptures, is not something that we have to figure out. It's something that's spelled out in the word of God. And we are to focus our attention on the revealed will of God more than what's next for me in my life. 
What's next for you is to get on with living a life that is fully consecrated to the Lord. God cares about every area of your life. And when the Bible talks about God's will, more often than not, it's speaking of something that's made very clear in God's word. I want to try and demonstrate this to you. When Paul says that we worship God by not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of our mind, when he says that we renew our minds through discerning his will, he then gives us a clue of exactly what a renewed mind versus a worldly mind looks like. He shows us exactly what the will of God is. The pattern in verse 2 is our clue. Not this, but this. Not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind. That pattern, not, but, shows up in the rest of what follows. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Look at verse 3, which is our passage. Paul says to everyone, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Verse 16, not to be haughty, but to associate with the lowly. Verse 19, again, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. You see, in each one of these examples, we see an example of what it looks like to be conformed to the world. We're told what not to do. But we're also given an example of what it means to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. We're told what to do as we live our lives as a living sacrifice to God. A life of holistic worship is a life that looks really different from the world. And actually looks at the world very different than the world looks at the world. The world, to give an example, calls you to be proud. Worship of God requires humility, as we'll see. The world calls you to get even with that person who has wronged you. Those who worship God give it over to God. There's much more, but you get the point. In order to have a renewed mind, to know what the will of God is, We have to think differently than the world. We think according to the word of God. And we apply that in every area of our lives. So remember, we basically only wear one hat as a Christian. Your main role in life, do you want to know what it is? If you are a believer, it's to worship God. If you're not a believer, you're worshiping as well. You're simply worshiping something other than the one true God. And I urge you today to turn from worshiping idols, to turn to Christ, to believe that he has died for your sins and to give your life to worshiping him. The one thing that your life should be about as a believer is worshiping God with all that you have and in every area of your life. The chapters that follow we see how to apply this principle to every area of our life. So let's look at how it applies to our ministry mindset in the church. My second point is this. A renewed mind 
will lead to a ministry marked by humility. Or a renewed mind will lead to humble ministry. The assumption here is interesting. The assumption is that you're doing ministry. What's being taught is how we're doing ministry. So so let me just pause and say, I'm not going to say get involved in doing ministry. Paul's assuming that. And so we can talk about that separately. Here, he's talking about how we're engaged in doing ministry. And he's going to talk about spiritual gifts in verses 6 to 8. I find it very ironic, very interesting, the topic of spiritual gifts. Debates over the spiritual gifts have caused so much division within the church. Questions abound. Are all of the gifts listed in the New Testament? Do they continue or have some of them ceased? What about uh, gifts like prophecy? What exactly is that? What does that look like today? What about the gift of tongues? What is that? Does, Does that continue? Paul, I just want to let you know right at the get-go, he doesn't answer any of those questions for us in this passage. But what I want to point out is the gifts that so often divide. It's ironic because Paul's clear teaching on the gifts is that they should unite us. They should unite us. And so we're not going to dive into the specifics of spiritual gifts. I'm assuming that you know that you have them and that you are to use them. What we're going to talk about is how we use them in a way that is in line with the mercies of God, which should lead us to humility. So what does a renewed mind look like? We're told in verse 3, Paul says to everyone in the church, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This is the main point in verses 3 to 8 about ministry in the church, about spiritual gifts. When it comes to our spiritual gifts, it seems that there is a danger that some will see their gifts as more important than others and begin to think more highly of themselves than they ought. Paul says, do you want to know what the first mark of somebody who has a renewed mind is? Do you want to know what the first mark of somebody who is not conformed to the way that the world sees things, but is transformed by the renewal of their mind? You'll see it in this, that as they think about themselves, they'll not think more highly than they ought to think, but instead they will think of themselves with sober judgment. In other words, They will have humility in the way that they think about themselves. Why will they have humility? I mean, as it relates to the spiritual gifts, it's very obvious, as verse 6 says, that the spiritual gifts are themselves a grace. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So whether whatever our gifts may be, they're just that. They're gifts. We don't, we don't call them our strengths. <laughs> we call them our spiritual gifts. Literally, they are a grace. And if they are given to us, there's no reason to be proud for possessing them. There's no strength. There's no talent. There's no ability in any one of us 
that is not given to us by God, either by His providence or by His special work in our lives. But it's interesting on this passage about spiritual gifts. That's not where Paul starts. The first reason he gives for being humble is that even our faith is a gift. So he takes a step back and he says, just think about your life as a Christian. If you're going to not think highly of yourself, but to think with sober judgment, you need to do that, as he says, according to the measure of faith, verse 3, that God has assigned. We know the teaching that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul seems to be saying here that even your faith is a gift from God. You have no reason to boast or to think highly of yourself. Your gifts are from God. Your faith is from God. The other reason he gives for not boasting has to do with what the church is in verses 4 to 5. There are many people in a church, many members, but the many members are one body. Every church is comprised of people from all different walks of life, all different gifts. We all function in various and unique ways, but the thing that stands over all of that is the reality that we were not simply saved as individuals, not simply gifted as individuals, but we were saved into a body, the body of Christ, which is a heavenly reality, is manifest in every local church. Paul doesn't talk about first free or the church at Ephesus being a church. He says the church. Every local church, its members constitute one body. We've got to think about ourselves this way if we want to avoid pride. I mean, just think about how radically different this way of thinking is than the thinking of the world. That all that I have is a gift from God? Even my strengths and abilities? I mean, didn't I work hard to get these? Yes, you have gifts, but they're all from God. Or this radical way of thinking that I'm not, I'm not just my own person. Autonomous. That's what the world calls. Make a name for yourself. Be famous. God's way of thinking. A transformed, renewed mind will say, no, I'm a part of the body of Christ. And so my gifts are not here to puff me up. They're, they're, given to me in order to build this body up, the body of which I am a part. That's the filter through which we need to understand the gifts. I want to look um, at the gifts in verses 6 to 8, but I want to do so more to drive home this point that I think Paul is making. He starts with prophecy. Prophecy is defined by many is proclaiming to the body something revealed by God. If you think about it for a moment, if you have a gift like this and you're using it, you're proclaiming to the body something revealed by God. You'd maybe become pretty well known. Maybe people would think you were pretty big stuff. But Paul says, if you have that gift, use it in proportion to your faith. 
He's doing the same thing, I think. He's saying, remember, your faith in Jesus Christ was given to you by God. Your faith makes you just one of many within the body. Don't be proud. Be humble. I see the same thing coming out in the next three gifts that are listed, beginning in verse 7. If service and are serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. It's kind of a weird way to talk about using the spiritual gifts, isn't it? You know, if you serve, do it in your serving. What does he mean by that? What's the point that he's trying to drive home in these three things? I think one way to think about it is he could be saying, just stay in your lane. If you've been gifted as a servant, serve. You don't need to worry about what this person over here is doing or what this person over here is doing. Do the thing that you're called to do. Another way to look at it is when you're doing the thing that God has gifted you to do, remember the nature of that gift. So serving in its very nature is others-oriented. So it's not about you and your position. It's about serving. Same thing with teaching. What does a teacher do? A teacher gives the people of God the word of God. It's not about the teacher. It's about what is taught. The same thing with exhortation, where we exhort people to apply the word of God to their lives so that they can grow, so that they can be changed. It's not about the one who exhorts. It's about the very nature of exhortation, which is for the benefit of the other person. Either way you take these three gifts, the point is what verse 3 says. To not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think of yourself with sober judgment. The last three gifts gifts are I think likewise grouped together with a similar pattern, but a different pattern. They start with a gift, then they say how the gift should be used. Again, it's not that we're serving, it's how we're serving that is very important to Paul. So the one who contributes in generosity, or another way to translate this would be to say the one who contributes in sincerity. The point is either... Don't be stingy. I mean, if you're giving, don't be stingy about it. Be generous. Or the point may be, if you're giving, don't do it for a show. Don't do it to get something back in return. The manner of your giving should be motivated by the mercy of God and the good of the church. If it's in leading, then do so with zeal or to do so with diligence. In other words, Don't use your leadership position as a platform for your ego. Don't view your position as a leader as an entitlement. Work diligently on behalf of the body. And finally, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. One could do merciful things in order to be noticed. The litmus test for Paul that cheerful, I mean, that acts of mercy are done in love is that they are done with cheerfulness. Again, the assumption in the whole passage is that a person is in a church, committed to a church, using their gifts in the church. The point 
is how they do so. If their life is all about worship of God, though everything they have and in every area of their life, if it's all about worship of God, it should be marked by the things of God. It should be marked by humility. If your mind is right, if your mind is transformed, you're not going to look at things the way the world does, which is proud. You're going to look at them with humility. You're not seeking to increase your worth or your popularity or your recognition in the church. You're seeking to magnify God's worth. That's the whole point of your life. If you've received God's mercy, all of your life is about worshiping God. It'll show up in the ways that you minister in the church. And as we'll see in the weeks ahead, it will show up in every area of your life. One hat, one thing, worship of God, but it applies to all things. That's the message. If you're sitting there today thinking, I just don't know that my life is consecrated, Lord, to thee. That it's all directed to the worship of God. Can I give just a very simple application this morning? Remember where this all began. It begins with mercy. A life of worship is the overflow of somebody who gets the mercy of God. That we've been brought out from under God's wrath and under His grace. That we have been delivered from a life of worshiping idols. We've been forgiven through Christ and are now called to live our lives for Him. It's reasonable. It only makes sense. But if you've not first grasped the mercy of God, then it is difficult to give your life to the worship of God. Let's pray. Father, help us to grasp the depths of Your mercy So that every area of our lives, everything in us, would be directed towards worship of you. Worship in very tangible ways that we speak, we think, and that we act. We ask this for the sake of your name and through the grace of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.